Retrogram, Revisiting TV Futures from the Past. An examination of yesteryear's television science fiction, fantasy, spy-fi, horror, and superhero shows. Commencing Retrogram. Retrogram number 7601, beginning the bicentennial with the Brits. The week of December 29, 1975. Welcome back to Retrogram, the logbook.com's retro TV podcast that rewinds the history of sci-fi, fantasy, horror, superhero, and spy-fi TV, sometimes one week at a time. And that's what we're doing here. The show's usual format is to pick one week between 1970 and 1990, rewatch that week's genre TV, and report back to you, the listener, living in the future. And we're celebrating a new year by celebrating an old new year. The world wasn't exactly settled and peaceful in the week that ended 1975 and began 1976. No more than it is now, really. The previous week had seen the formation of Iron Maiden in East London and the signing of the U.S. Metric Conversion Act by President Ford, which, at least on paper, should have been the beginning of the United States shifting from imperial units of measurement to the metric system. And yet, just try to find anyone who remembers this completely ignored piece of legislation anywhere within a mile of you now. Typical America, really. The week beginning on Monday, December 29, 1975, was really bad for air travel. That Monday, a terrorist bomb exploded in a locker in LaGuardia Airport, killing 11 people. On Thursday, January 1st, another terrorist bomb destroyed a Middle East Airlines Boeing 720 over Saudi Arabia, killing all 81 people aboard. And two days later, a jetliner leaving Moscow crashed moments after takeoff in hazardous weather conditions, killing all 61 people on the plane and one on the ground. Holy crap, better just stay in those station wagons everyone was driving. That sounds like it had to be safer. One bright spot of that week, pro golfer Tiger Woods was born on Tuesday, December 30th. Another bright spot, the United States was entering its centennial year. Surely this was cause for hope and reflection, and maybe recommitting to furthering the cause of achieving that elusive so-called American dream, though at that point we didn't know if we were miles or kilometers away from ever getting near it. And you'd think that going into this year of celebrating two centuries of the United States, there'd be some chest-thumping patriotic American sci-fi on the air, right? Well, not so much. This was one of those weeks where it seemed like broadcasters in the UK had a lock on the fantastic. Let's rewind to the beginning of 1976 to see what that was like. Space 1999, Season 1, Episode 17, The Last Sunset, aired January 1st, 1976, on ITV. The story so far. 
In the year 1999, Moonbase Alpha is the furthest outpost of human space explorers, an advanced self-contained facility with dozens of human researchers, medical personnel, engineers, astronaut pilots, and a few administrators. Commander John Koenig arrives to take command of Alpha amid a government cover-up of a growing wave of unexplained illnesses and deaths. As Moonbase Alpha prepares to monitor the launch of the interstellar Metaprobe, the first human-crewed mission to a planet around another star, disaster strikes. A nuclear waste dump reaches a critical temperature and its contents detonate, generating enough force to push the moon out of Earth's orbit. The launch platform of the Metaprobe is wrecked, and the crew of Moonbase Alpha barely survives. Koenig, along with Chief Medic Dr. Helena Russell, Chief Scientist Professor Victor Bergman, Second-in-Command Paul Morrow, Hotshot Eagle Pilot Alan Carter, and the rest of his command staff, struggle to keep everyone under his command alive, and prepared to face the unknowable wonders that await them as the moon is hurled into deep space beyond the solar system. The Last Sunset Land Ho! The moon is on a trajectory that will bring it into a solar system containing the planet Ariel, a habitable world whose atmosphere has four times the oxygen density that Earth's atmosphere has. Furthermore, Moonbase Alpha's computer predicts that the moon might be captured by the gravity of Ariel or its sun. It could become a permanent fixture here. If Ariel is inhabitable, is that so bad? That's why Commander Koenig has dispatched Eagles 2 and 7 with Alan Carter behind the wheel of Eagle 2 to land on Ariel and check it out. Let's make sure it's hospitable before we get our hopes up. Just a minute. Alan spotted something inbound. It's homing in on Eagle 2, and it's following as Alan tries to change course. He tries to get away from it, but the clearly artificial object attaches itself to the side of the Eagle. It might be a missile or a bomb. Koenig orders the Eagles back to Moonbase Alpha and evacuates all the landing pad personnel just in case whatever it is detonates. But it doesn't detonate, and it doesn't have any security measures preventing the crew from detaching it and bringing it into a secure lab area, where it suddenly begins emitting a thick gas. Evacuate the lab, seal off this section, and open the airlocks. But the pressure of the gas inside the object blasts the lab windows out anyway, and the gas just keeps coming. How is there so much gas in this thing about the size of an oil drum? Furthermore, more of them are coming in for a landing. They start emitting gas, too. Victor calls in a surprising scientific finding. The gas pouring out of these things is breathable air, and they're doing something that's increasing the moon's gravity to Earth normal. The moon will have an atmosphere soon. The next sunrise on the moon lights up a bright blue sky. Never mind the planet Ariel, everyone could just walk out onto the surface of the moon without spacesuits this time. Most of the cylinders depart back from where they came, wherever that is. Koenig asks for two volunteers from the main mission command staff to step out onto the surface and breathe the air. Paul Morrow and Sandra Benish step forward, suit up, and go outside. And then Paul takes off a glove, and then his helmet. And he says it smells like country air. That's all everyone in Moonbase Alpha needs to hear. Let's crank down the windows and open the doors. After months of being cooped up in the Moonbase, everyone's ready for everything from a game of tennis to some sunbathing to just not being cooped up in the Moonbase. Hey, I'm hip. The spring-like conditions are bringing some very human instincts to the surface, the kind of instincts that might just increase the population of the Moon, if you know what I mean. Victor thinks it might be possible to fertilize the lunar soil and start growing crops. 
and almost right on cue, an actual rainstorm starts up, and you know what? Alan and everyone else is just going to stay out there and play in the rain. Commander Koenig spotted a problem, though. Moonbase Alpha was built in a crater to offer it a bit of protection on an airless world, but if there's enough rain, that crater will fill up. Moonbase Alpha will be underwater. There will be no going back. A scientific expedition is launched led by Dr. Russell with other members of the crew aboard the Eagle with her, Alan Carter, Paul Morrow, and Sandra, to see if these changes are happening around the entire moon and to see if this atmosphere is sustaining. Turns out the atmosphere is doing more than that. Storm clouds are forming. That has the result of not just causing radio interference with the Eagle's data relay back to Moonbase Alpha, but let's face it, an Eagle is already not very aerodynamic as it is. It's built to operate in space, not for extended flight in an atmosphere. One lightning strike leaves the Eagle without any power, and it goes down hard. Two more Eagles are prepped for a search and rescue mission, but even at a higher altitude, it's not easy. Fog forms in the lunar valleys. Carter's Eagle is mostly buried in the soft lunar soil, and one Eagle flies almost directly overhead without seeing them. Victor has some encouraging news, though. In a matter of days, the moon will pass close enough to Ariel's home star that it has about a one-in-two chance of entering orbit, which would make it a home star stay-putter. That star's proximity is what's keeping this new atmosphere warm, and if the moon overshoots it, the Earth-like conditions will quickly deteriorate, and no one's really sure what will happen with the atmosphere or the machines that are generating it if the moon becomes a home star runner. When Koenig tries to lead a search-and-rescue flight, his eagle goes down, because all of the eagle's exposed surfaces, including their engines, are now suffering from corrosion that they've never had to deal with in the vacuum of space. You know what I'm thinking? They probably also don't have windshield wipers. Victor and the boys in the technical section get to work on corrosion-proofing the eagles, but it'll be a couple of days before even one of them is rust-proof and ready. In the meantime, no one's found that crashed eagle. Things are pretty dicey. An acid spill from a battery has left the crew of four with less usable water and food than expected. The crash site is like a desert on Earth, roasting hot during the day, freezing at night. Sandra's been injured and may not make it. Paul steps outside. Maybe he's going to walk until he finds water, or maybe he's going out there to die so that the water left aboard the Eagle will last his crewmates longer. He walks until he falls down, but then he finds that he's landed face first in a patch of some kind of fungus growing in a small shaded area. And where there's fungus, there's moisture and water. He builds an outdoor shelter near the fungus and returns to the Eagle to lead his friends to what he says is their new home. He says it's their new Garden of Eden. Helen is not so sure, and she wants to run further tests on the fungus before anyone eats it. Except, uh, Paul already has. And maybe that's not a great idea, because Paul thinks he's somewhere between Adam and God now. He's gone native in an instant, and he's more of a threat to his crewmates than a help to them. The blue satellites, the same ones that deposited a new atmosphere for the moon and then left, have returned, landing and beginning to take away what they bestowed. The moon's new atmosphere is being sucked away, and anyone on the surface has very little time left. Seeing a rescue eagle flying nearby but not near enough, Helena returns to the crashed eagle, lines oxygen bottles up, opens the valves, and then fires a weapon at them from outside, causing the entire eagle to explode. It's enough of an explosion to get the rescue eagle down to them. 
Enraged that his Garden of Eden is no more, Paul attacks Commander Koenig, who is leading the rescue mission, but as the air pressure drops precipitously, Paul's in no condition to put up much of a fight. All of the Eagle Crash survivors are rescued and brought back to Alpha. One of the satellites delivers a message. The people of the planet Ariel have monitored Earth and its inhabitants since they evolved, and considering how violent and irrational humanity proved to be, they decided to deliver a temporary atmosphere to the moon to distract everyone on Alpha from any thoughts of visiting Ariel. And what transpired with Paul just proved their point. Paul's okay, by the way. Once she has the moon base labs to study the fungus, Helena finds that the fungus had a hallucinogenic side effect that can be eliminated, so more of the fungus can be grown inside as a food source. But it will have to be grown inside. The last of the satellites leaves, and the crew of Moonbase Alpha gathers to watch Ariel's sun drop below the horizon for the last time. And filtered through what's left of the temporary atmosphere, it's the most Earth-like sunset they've seen in months, and perhaps the last one like it anyone on Moonbase Alpha will ever see. The End The Last Sunset was written by Christopher Penfold and directed by Charles Crichton, neither of them strangers to Space 1999. Now, I think Brian Johnson and his practical effects team are in for some major kudos here. The cinematography of the miniature lunar surface model set is amazing in this episode. Now, lighting a miniature environment like that for perfectly normal daylight conditions was a skill set that this team of model makers and effects technicians had been honing since the days of Thunderbirds. But that closing scene where the Earth-like sunset drops away and the lighting reverts to the inky black of space and the normal grayness of the lunar surface, that was just amazing. I know it's just a change in lighting and maybe a dissolve edit, but it is tremendously effective here. This has been my favorite episode of Space 1999 for quite a long time, though at times it's been neck and neck with the episode Earthbound as my favorite. I hadn't watched this in quite a few years, and seeing it again reminded me, uh, yeah, The Last Sunset is my favorite. I actually enjoyed it more now than I have in the past. Any episode of Space 1999 that I like, and I do like quite a few of them, especially in Season 1, almost always comes with a qualifier attached. It's my favorite, but it gets kind of goofy when Paul Morrow starts going native and gets crazy with it. Rewatching this in 2020? I totally get it. People get overwhelmed by what's happening to them, and they do some crazy stuff. Now, I still think Paul's sudden conversion from space hero to nutty nature boy happens eh, a bit fast, but it kind of has to. We've got to get more or less three stories into the space of 51 minutes or so, and whatever happens with the Crashed Eagle and its crew members has to happen within 72 to 96 hours because it's been established in the story they have virtually no water left. You know what else about The Last Sunset tracks really well in 2020? the people of Ariel deploying this fleet of satellites to give the moon an atmosphere for a few days to keep everyone too distracted to go to Ariel itself. That's a really neat plan. It's not malicious, poses very little danger, and it indicates that the folks on Ariel view a moon base full of humans as, I don't know, a moon base full of corgis and pugs. They're adorable, they're curious, but they also chew things up and sh** all over the place. Let's distract them instead! Squirrel, look at the shiny thing. Go get it, fetch! Good boy. Keep them chasing their tails until they're out of our solar system and done. Now curl up in your moon base and take a nap. Your atmosphere is dissipating. 
I think the reason this is my favorite, and the reason I mention Earthbound in the same breath, is that this really is one of the best stories in terms of giving the Alphans a huge amount of hope that they can either get home or make a new home. And then, of course, snatching it away. I mean, <laughs> in that regard, Space 1999 shares some DNA with Gilligan's Island, of all things. And sure, there are some elements that are contrived and a bit tropey. You know, of course, the necessary survival supplies are damaged, contaminated beyond usefulness in the crash, because you have no narrative tension and no ticking clock if they aren't. So, yes, of course that happens. But it really reveals a lot about so many of the characters, including those who don't normally get a lot of screen time, like Sandra, and that's what the story should do. Now, is there anything I really actively dislike about The Last Sunset? Oh yeah, there's one element of the story that still seems wildly out of place. After Paul discovers the mushrooms, he seems to be ascribing that discovery to divine providence. No one comes right out and says, God made sure we found these mushrooms, so Paul is the chosen of God. But they tiptoe right up to the edge of that. Even Alan Carter's telling the skeptical Dr. Helena Russell, Hey, Doc, don't knock it. But Helena is doing everything pretty much right. She wants to check out these mushrooms before anyone else eats a bunch of them. And really, as most ground-growing fungi go, Morrow was really lucky they didn't outright kill him after they were consumed. They did send him on a pretty bad trip, which is where his delusions of divine intervention come from. However, uh, let me play devil's advocate to myself. After the past four or five years, and especially this past year, maybe I can let this off the hook too. I think we've all seen people we thought we knew just become completely irrational over the past few years. So I can't even write this off as totally unbelievable anymore. I do want to give mad props to Barbara Bain. This is a really good episode for Dr. Russell. When Paul starts losing his shit, she has this panicked, horrified look on her face that's like, I have a patient who's in bad shape, I already have to try to treat her with stone knives and bear skins, and now I have to fight a man who's pretty close to peak physical condition to protect her, and I did not sign up for this last part. I love it when Helena blows up the eagle by bazookaing the oxygen bottles. Out of everyone, she's the only one using her whole brain in this situation. So let's hear it for Dr. Helena Russell, saving the day as usual. She really is the smartest person in the room in this episode, even when she's been thrown around a bit and is desperate. Doctor Who, Season 13, Episode 17, The Brain of Morbius, Part 1, aired Saturday, January 3rd, on BBC One. The story so far, the Doctor is on the run from his home planet Gallifrey and his people, the Time Lords. He stole a TARDIS, a time machine bigger on the inside than out, and wanders the universe with his usually human companions, righting wrongs, occasionally defending Earth from alien invasions at various points along the history of the human race, and trying to defeat evil wherever he finds it. His current sidekick in the TARDIS is headstrong journalist Sarah Jane Smith. The Brain of Morbius, Part 1 The planet Karn looks nothing like the tourism posters. 
Okay, let's face it, the planet Karn probably doesn't have any tourism posters. An insectoid creature hobbles away from what's left of its escape pod and is promptly murdered by a hulking pale humanoid who has a hand on one arm and a hook on the other. I really hope you weren't hoping to learn more about this insectoid creature's hopes, motivations, and dreams. He's dead. Inside a castle-like dwelling nearby, it's Professor Mahendri Solon, and he's admiring a sculpture of someone's head, someone who really seems to have had a menacing face and a distinctly time-lordly choice of headgear. The hulking brute who we just saw behead the insect creature, here he is walking in the door, holding the insect's head, and presenting it to Solon like a cat bringing its owner a freshly killed bird. Solon's reaction isn't pleasant, but not for the reasons you'd expect. This head won't do at all. Sure, the insect was an oxygen breather, but he needs a mammalian humanoid head, something that can be connected to an existing central nervous system, and this, well, this is a bug. Get it out of here. Outside, the TARDIS appears, and the doctor strides out immediately, scowling and talking to someone who's not there. He's not happy. He thinks the Time Lords have diverted his TARDIS to Karn to run an errand for them. The last time this happened, in just the previous season, he and his companions were deposited at the moment of the creation of the Daleks, which was a dangerous situation he'd rather not repeat. Who else is in the TARDIS? Why, it's Sarah Jane Smith, and she thinks the Doctor might be overreacting just a bit. She spots the abandoned escape pod whose occupant was just killed, and... Ah, there's the scream. She's found the headless body, too. This breaks the Doctor out of his funk, but there isn't anything that can be done for the creature. The Doctor even recognizes the species, but as a storm breaks out, he and Sarah become more interested in a castle that they see in the distance. As they begin to make their way there, a woman in red robes stands watch silently, and then reports back to her sisters. Meet the sisterhood of Karn. Remaining in seclusion on this planet, they are the guardians of the sacred flame, a fire that secretes an elixir which offers them something like immortality, though they must drink small doses of the elixir at regular intervals to keep the ravages of age at bay. But the flame burns lower now than it has in the past, and the leader of the sisterhood, Marin, worries that the flame may burn out, and with it, their order. In the past, when the elixir was more plentiful, the sisters shared their supply of it with the Time Lords, who could use it in emergencies to trigger regeneration. If what has been witnessed outside is indeed the arrival of a Time Lord, Marin is worried that the interlopers have arrived to take the last of the elixir. Someone's ringing the doorbell at Solon's castle. Why, it's the Doctor and Sarah. And Solon is so happy to see them. So very, very happy to see them, especially the Doctor. Solon can't stop going on about what a fine head the Doctor has. Not a fine head of hair, though he does have that too. But that's just a great head, man. You can probably see where Solon is going with this, even though the TARDIS travelers are unaware. The Doctor immediately notices the sculpture. In fact, he swears he has seen that face before. Nope, 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 no you haven't, Solon says, and he puts a drop cloth over the sculpture. He has Kondo, his one-armed manservant, bring out some wine and food for his guests. The Sisterhood of Karn is gathered in a circle, chanting and focusing their considerable powers of telekinesis. They find and retrieve the TARDIS without ever coming out of hiding. Once Maran gets near the TARDIS, she immediately senses what it is, a Time Lord vehicle. In her mind, this confirms that the new arrivals on Karn have come to rob the sisters of the elixir. 
The circle resumes its chant as Marlin tries to find the occupants of the TARDIS. The doctor at Solon's castle has finally remembered something about his host, a brilliant but controversial neurosurgeon who attracted the cult-like following of the Gallifreyan war criminal Morbius. Oh, wait! That's a sculpt of Morbius's head over there, isn't it? What a coincidence! And that's when it hits the doctor. Not some kind of further realization, but the knockout drug that Kondo put in the wine. The doctor falls unconscious. Sarah, who has been avoiding drinking any of the wine, falls back in her chair as well, playing along and listening as Solon and Kondo talk about transplanting the doctor's head onto the body that Solon has fashioned for Morbius. Why don't they transplant Morbius's Time Lord brain into the doctor's perfectly intact Time Lord body? Don't ask. Just go with it. Go with it. Kondo wants to know what to do with the girl. Solon doesn't care. They'll kill her when it's time. But first it's time to fix the generator so Solon can have proper lighting in his operating room. The doctor, still unconscious, is left alone in the lab and then disappears as the sisterhood of Karn telekinetically kidnaps him. Sarah, left unattended, goes sneaking down through the lab to save the doctor and sees movement behind a curtain. When she parts the curtain, she finds a body. Well, okay, not really one body, but a horrifying piecemeal amalgamation of body parts from various species sewn together and still twitching. To be continued. The Brain of Morbius was directed by Christopher Barry. Christopher had a long history of directing Doctor Who episodes, going all the way back to the second story in the series' history, the Daleks. He also directed the William Hartnell stories, The Rescue, The Romans, and The Savages, and Patrick Troughton's first story, Power of the Daleks. In John Pertwee's era, he directed The Demons and The Mutants. By the way, The Mutants is where the insectoid life form that we meet at the beginning of the episode hails from. And the Doctor even comments that he recognizes the species. Yes, because he met that species when he was John Pertwee. Christopher Berry also directed Robot, which was Tom Baker's first episode. So that's, that is um, two premiere episodes for two different Doctors right there. Um, he directed the first, the first story of Patrick Troughton and Tom Baker's era, and he would come back one more time in Doctor Who history to direct the um, perhaps less than classic four-part episode, The Creature from the Pit, as well as the 1990s direct-to-video spin-off, Downtime. Christopher Berry also directed three episodes of Moonbase 3, which we have discussed in previous retrograms. The episodes in question were Achilles' Heel, Castor and Pollux, and View of a Dead Planet, an episode which we covered in the very first retrogram. This is the next-to-last appearance, by the way, of the original police box prop. This police box had been repainted, fixed up, patched together, all the way back to the 60s. In the following story, during the filming of the following story, The Seeds of Doom, the police box finally gave up, and it collapsed on the stars of the show during filming. The Seeds of Doom was the last story of this season of Doctor Who, so the following season... They had to budget to create a new TARDIS prop. The story, as a whole, is written by Robin Bland. Robin Bland was a pseudonym for Terence Dix, the former Doctor Who script editor from the John Pertwee era, 
who was now in the position of pitching stories in from the outside and having to contend with his scripts being edited by his successor, Robert Holmes. Why the pseudonym? Terence's original idea was that you'd have the hideous creature trying to bring a somewhat normal human-looking man to life, not vice versa. This is where the element of putting the doctor's head on this patched-together body makes absolutely no sense. It makes way more sense in the original formulation. The patched-together monster would be trying to put Morbius's brain in the doctor's intact body. But a series of changes to the scripts reverted the idea to Man Builds Monster instead of vice versa, which basically it's Frankenstein. And so Terence thought, well, that's a bit bland. And thus a pen name was born. The joke is kind of on him, however. The Brain of Morbius is a much-loved and fondly remembered story in Doctor Who lore, and it's one that sends ripples as far forward in the Doctor Who mythos as the 50th anniversary, the Peter Capaldi era, and the most recent Jodie Whittaker season of Doctor Who. Now, I probably need to back that up a bit, so buckle up. It gets fun here. This is the first story to present us with the planet Karn and its inhabitants, the Sisterhood of Karn. In this story, the Doctor looks at the stars in the sky, or actually the beginning of this episode in Part 1, the Doctor looks at the stars in the sky and says he was born in these parts, which is meant to imply that Karn is very close in space to Gallifrey, so close that its constellations appear more or less the same. Now, other writers took this and ran with it. In the 1990s, when Doctor Who was off television but thriving in print as a series of original and official novels that went places that the TV series simply couldn't, the Doctor Who New Adventures novels posited that the Sisterhood of Karn were originally the women of Gallifrey, the Doctor's home planet, and that a bitter war between the sexes and between hard science and signs masquerading as magic broke out, driving the sisters from Gallifrey to settle on the nearby planet of Karn. The Gallifreyans who remained on their home planet, realizing that the exodus of the sisterhood meant that reproducing by good old-fashioned sex was going to lead to either extinction or a very diluted, limited gene pool in very short order, directed their scientific efforts toward discovering another means of perpetuating the species. And that led to weaving DNA into new Time Lords via a series of genetic looms across Gallifrey, and written into the DNA of the Time Lords born in the looms was regeneration. Now, it's easy to think, hey, those were just licensed novels. That stuff gets invalidated all the time by whatever comes down the pike in a TV script, right? Not necessarily. And this is the absolutely wonderful thing about Doctor Who in all of its forms. The revived TV series picked up on these elements beautifully. You remember David Tennant's final two-part episode in 2009 with the crazy crone on Gallifrey predicting the doom of, well, everything and everyone? Her costume and makeup were deliberately evocative of the Sisterhood of Karn in that story, as if she was a member of the Sisterhood who had either returned to Gallifrey by her own choice, or perhaps she was captured and brought there. It's not really made very clear, basically to read Rassilon's tea leaves and entrails for him. The Sisterhood of Karn began appearing in Big Finish audios early in the 21st century, again involving an attempt to revive the Time Lord war criminal Morbius, in a handful of stories starring Paul McGann. But in the 50th anniversary teaser webisode, Night of the Doctor, McGann's Doctor returns to Karn, and the way it's written, they recognize him, and he recognizes them. 
Of course, that's the same mini-story where the Eighth Doctor recites the names of his companions who only existed in the Big Finish audios, thus making them TV official. The Sisterhood shows up a couple more times during Peter Capaldi's era, but the really interesting thing is the big reveal at the end of Jodie Whittaker's most recent season, which ties back directly to the brain of Morbius. In part four of this story, and yeah, I'm going to spoil it for you a little bit, the Doctor and the reborn Morbius engage in a mind-wrestling session, apparently a brutal ancient Gallifreyan sport. A succession of faces appears on a screen as they do this, including the past faces of the Doctor and a bunch of other faces, some of which are Morbius and some of which the producers intended to be previously unknown Doctors. Did you know that the question of how many Doctors there had been was not even nailed down definitively until the five Doctors in 1983? But now, fast forward to Jodie Whittaker's most recent season, and we find out that the Doctor has had more faces than we ever knew about, enter Joe Martin. But the Doctor's origin is revealed, as much as it can be, as an entity called the Timeless Child, the one who brought the ability to regenerate to Gallifrey, which works out really well with the story of the Time Lords, the Sisterhood, the War Between the Sexes, and the Looms. This is what I love about Doctor Who. Maybe haphazardly, maybe in a way that's more by accident than by design, you can make it all fit. And sometimes making it all fit is this wonderful creative exercise that's actually quite a bit of fun. Speaking of creative exercises, Marin mentions the silent gas dirigibles of the Huthai here, which was intended as a throwaway line, but that throwaway line became the inspiration for an entire story, the 1992 New Adventures novel Love and War by Paul Cornell, which featured the Seventh Doctor and was actually kind of an exceptional horror novel in a Doctor Who format. It has since been adapted into a very good audio story by Big Finish, and I highly recommend it in either format. So, fun fact, and one that you probably already know if you've read my book, Warp One, which you can still find at thelogbook.com slash store. Plug over. Part two of The Brain of Morbius, which is to say not this episode, but the one after it, was the first Doctor Who I ever watched. This was in 1980, and it was when KTVT a commercial satellite superstation out of Dallas, Texas, and not a public broadcasting service affiliate, was running some of the Tom Baker episodes. For whatever reason, my mother caught it coming on and said, this looks like your kind of show. I don't think she had ever watched it before either, but wow, thanks, Mom. She wasn't wrong. So coming into the story cold after this point was my entry point into Doctor Who. And I distinctly remember while watching this that what really fueled my interest in the show was eight-year-old me having a huge crush on Sarah Jane, which is kind of an odd reason to form a lifelong attachment to a TV series where the companions change all the time, but uh, whatever works, right? Now, going back to what I said in a previous retrogram about Doctor Who's 1970s switch from imaginary weapons to more typical earthly handguns, that trend is still in effect here. As Solon is armed with a pistol that's only slightly futuristic, but, as we see in later episodes of this story, fires bullets. Between that and some of the other gothic horror elements of the brain of Morbius, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, which held the rights to air Doctor Who's original run Down Under, did not air this story in full until 1986, a decade after its original air date. 
and even a heavily edited version wasn't aired in Australia until 1980. One last obligatory note, as a collector with a huge amount of love for the Doctor Who action figures released by Character Options and Underground Toys, I will point out that the Morbius monster, of which Sarah barely catches a glimpse in this episode's cliffhanger, was one of the figures released in the first wave of Character's classic series Doctors and Villains. It's a tremendously detailed figure, and ugh, just as icky as the on-screen prop. To this day, because of a typo that I frequently make when discussing this story, I call that action figure Brian of Morbius. Once I started looking into the real historical events going on toward the end of 1975, going into 1976, I kind of worried about the week I picked. Wait, this kind of sounds like a week that completely sucked. Especially if you were on a plane. Alan Crotter might be able to survivably bring an eagle down in the moon's low gravity, but the odds of surviving any of those more earthly incidents were... non-existent. And that's when I realized, no, this first weekend of sci-fi in 1976 was kind of a perfect choice. Actually, even though those are UK air dates. The early 70s were not kind to those on either side of the pond. Disputes, strikes, embargoes surrounding all kinds of fuel, political scandals, and as air travel became more common, a whole new kind of terrorism was taking shape, one that would become more deadly over the next few decades. Everyone had gotten used to things being rough. There was no real reason to expect them to get better. Except that the U.S. had a nice big round number birthday to celebrate, and after all that the early 70s had brought with them, rounding the corner into the latter half of the decade, and that anniversary, there was reason enough right there to make a party out of it. We're kind of in the same boat now. The past few years, wow, just wow. And we've hit a round number, even though things still kind of suck, he said to an audience that's probably still sitting at home trying to wait out the coronavirus crisis. We can still dare to hope. So back at the beginning of 1976, as we do now, hope we did. Even as futuristic space heroes from across the Atlantic were playing out troubled future adventures in our imaginations and on our screens. The Retrogram Podcast was researched, written, and hosted by Earl Green. The show's theme music was composed and performed by Jazar and licensed under Creative Commons. You can find his work at betterwithmusic.com and at freemusicarchive.org. Free Music Archive is also home to lots of other great music. Additional music in this episode was by DZ, also licensed under Creative Commons. Looking for a New Year's resolution? It's not too late. You could join the ranks of the Logbook.com's Patreon supporters. Even if you can only pitch in a little bit, even that little bit helps keep the Logbook.com and its podcasts and video casts going. You can be like Kevin and Ferg and Darwin and Cindy and Paul and Mark. Welcome back, Mark. You could sign up as a patron at Patreon.com slash the Logbook. If ongoing pledges of support aren't your thing, pour us a coffee, that's ko-fi.com slash the logbook, and make a one-time donation. 
You can also support the site by buying t-shirts, mugs, shower curtains, yes, shower curtains, and other goodies from our store at thelogbook.redbubble.com. And if you need to catch up on Star Trek Discovery, Star Trek Picard, and Star Trek Lower Decks, you can sign up for a free week of CBS All Access through our links. And if you decide to stay as a subscriber, that helps the logbook and retrogram out a lot. Retrogram is a production of thelogbook.com.